We need to get started with our second hour class. Good morning, brethren. This is day two of our prophecy class. I want to start this section this morning with a closer look at the resurrection process. That's the next major event you and I need to be reflecting upon is the actual call to judgment. Prophetically, everything is is in place right now. All of the players are there. We look at scenarios in the geopolitical world. You can reference them as triggers if you wish. This is how I like to look at things. For years we've talked about a potential trigger on Temple Mount should the mosque there be blown up. Today we can look at the trigger of the Iranian situation, which is just waiting for somebody to take action. And from some web pages, you might infer that perhaps this would be an Israeli or maybe a combined Israeli-U.S. strike of some kind. When the blathering at the U.N. stops, we're liable to see some action take place. But as far as you and I are concerned, the next event is the event of the call to judgment. So let's introduce this topic and turn up Daniel 10, please. Where we have Daniel in a symbolic death resurrection state. Now, it was in the third year of Cyrus, the year of Daniel's death, that a vision was given to the prophet of a certain man or a man of one who represented the multitudinous Christ and the perfected and glorified ecclesia of which Daniel himself, of course, was a member. And so having beheld the vision that uh, Daniel describes, then this sequence overtook him. And we have an enactment of his own death, resurrection, judgment, and glorification as an example of the process he and others will pass through to become a part of the multitudinous man of one. Now, in verse 8, we're told, There remained no strength in me, for my vigor turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. So the loss of strength and bodily vigor and resolution is the final stage of the passing of life from the body. When the, when the breath of life and one breathes their last breath. In verse 9, Then I was in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. So here we have Daniel prostrate upon the ground in a deep sleep, and that's a graphic enactment of death itself. So we have the first stage represented for us in verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And this then is an application of divine power brought and bringing about the reformation of the dead from their state of total corruption, irregardless as to how totally corrupted mutilated, dispersed that individual's body 
was, or became over the centuries, and brought them forth from the grave, a weak yet living mortal. We enter into stage two of Daniel's resurrection. Verse 11, Daniel was now told to stand upright, and he was now the subject of what we understand to be the anastasis process, the standing up of dead ones. I stood trembling, Daniel remarks, and though standing, Daniel was very feeble, and he would evidently be in a state of fear or apprehension. We can only imagine one brought back and resurrected and looking around and finding himself in this situation. Verse 15, I set my face toward the ground and I became dumb. Daniel was conscious about his nature. He was still earthly. He was speechless. And this was rendering him incapable of giving an account of himself to the judge yet at that stage. Verse 16, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and then he could speak. So now Daniel could give an account of himself at the judgment seat. He was now capable of being able to interact. The third stage of Daniel's resurrection is referenced in verse 18. Then there came again and touched me, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me. This was Daniel's change to divine nature, and it's the stage that we all yearn for as well. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will this be accomplished after a process which we'll consider. Verse 19, O man greatly beloved, Peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. So now Daniel stood forth in his immortalized strength. And Daniel, having died in the third year of Cyrus, it's felt in 54 B.C., and he was buried in Persia. And now, like most saints, he awaits the summons from the grave, which is styled the time of the dead and at the end of 1,335 years in Daniel chapter 2, we feel. Now, the vast majority of saints at the judgment seat of Christ will come through this resurrection process. We think we are many and we represent a great host here. We are really in the minority. We have... we. Hope here all to circumvent the death state. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection and the judgment is now basically a lost doctrine. It doesn't fit in with Christendom. It's muddled by the masses who now bank on going to heaven. Nobody goes to hell these days either, do they? The Apostle Paul said, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, yea, you are yet in your sins. Then they who which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. So it was critical that the resurrection of Christ be known, witnessed, and documented historically. This is a very critical scripture. And it was documented, and it was documented outside of Christendom, so to speak. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 to 8, we have testimony of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. 
And this was, in fact, about 20 years after that resurrection, but it was still regarded as a valid testimony. Considering that the scripture says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established, and that comes out of 2 Corinthians 13.1, the credibility of 500 witnesses is amazing and it's historically irrefutable. The order of those called to the judgment is very specific. And I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians 4.15, and I'll be there off and on for a little bit. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who are asleep. The diaglot would say, will by no means precede those who fell asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump, or the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, the word shout is rendered to put in motion by word or command. And this will start the events that we understand in John 5:28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that in their graves shall hear his voice. Now, Brother Thomas writes in Eureka, An angel's whisper can wake the dead when breathed by the command of him who is the resurrection and the life. This would be a great sound, though inaudible, in the ears of all flesh. Now, we have a number of examples and we have examples of trumpets that sounded as referenced in the apocalypse, and some have been more audible than others. And whether they're heard or not really depends upon one's status and position, doesn't it? We've got the sixth trumpets of the sixth trumpet of Revelation. And so this begins sounding at 395, and we have the Goths as they begin to bring judgment upon the western leg of Daniel's image um, in the Roman Empire. 429 to 477, we had the Vandals and their scourge. We had the Huns sweep through in 433. We had the official fall of Rome in 476 by the Goths. In 622, we had the rise of Muhammad. In 1453, we have the fall of Constantinople, which represents judgments upon the eastern leg of Daniel's image at that time. Make, there's no, there should be no doubt that this image of Daniel and it, the placement of its legs stands east and west, not north and south. And we have the French Revolution in 1789 and all that that implies. Now these trumpet, these events under this trumpet were representative of soundings. Yes, they were big world geopolitical upheavals and events, but to many historians and of course to the masses and populace, they were unheard. They didn't register of anything sequential or anything divine. These, I would say, have all been silent trumpets or alarms. Now, still referencing 1 Thessalonians 4, with the voice of the archangel. 
So the only archangel that we have mentioned in Scripture is Michael in Jude 9. The name means who like El, who like Yahweh. Michael appears to be the angel in charge of guiding the nation of Israel, and it's probable that he was Yahweh's name bearer in Exodus 23. Jesus is Yahweh's name bearer, we are told in John 17, verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. And he is also called or referenced as Michael in Daniel 12:1, is he not? Jesus has been given now all power and authority, including the power of life and death, the authority to forgive and to punish sins. Thus he comes with the voice of the archangel who is like El, or the manifestation of his father in this judgment role. Now, in addition, we're told in 1 Thessalonians that Messiah comes with the trumpets of God. Now, reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 52, we're told, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. This is again a silent trumpet, if you will, under the seventh in the apocalypse. Needless to say, there are silent trumpets, and there are some that will be heard more audibly. Now, I want to take a little diversion here. We call them rabbit trails, and let's talk about trumpets for a minute. And it'll help to uh, plump up this topic in your mind, because I submit in the kingdom age we will be hearing trumpets in the locale and confines of Zion on a regular basis. Now, regarding audible trumpets, you can turn up Numbers 10 if you want to, verses 1 to 10, gives us an account of how trumpets were used in historical Israel to accomplish various things. It was kind of an intercom system, a national PA system, if you will. Part of the tabernacle equipment was two silver trumpets to be blown by the sons of Aaron regarding call to worship. In addition, the ram's horn called the shofar was used for the calling of the entire assembly for matters of alarm or war and for the journeying of the camps. Instructions were very specific, and this was a national public address system. Trumpets both represented the voice of Yahweh at Sinai when his mixed multitude were to be instructed by Moses, and they came into national covenant by agreeing, Yea, all you say we will do. And secondly, trumpets represented the voice of Israel uplifted in doing God's will and occasionally in battle when they would appeal for his deliverance in times of distress. Now reading from Numbers 10 verse 9 then, And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and you shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. And verse 10, Also in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your offerings that that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. A memorial before your God. So these last two verses here in 
Numbers 10 form an allegory according to Barling. And it suggests in that God is with us as we do battle with sin in the world, external grapplings that we all have to contend with, um, events that come at us from the world, and that he will be with Israel again when the trumpets sound from Jerusalem in the day of the Lord. These are, we might categorize, as enemies at large. Sounding trumpets over the altar sacrifices, however, in verse 10, specifically the burnt offering, which reminded the people constantly of God's abhorrence to sin and which reminded the people constantly of the sacrifices necessary to cover their sin nature, their Adamic nature, were also blown. And it was driven home constantly that only through atonement for their sins and their sin nature that there was one coming who would take away the sins of the world. Sin nature, then, is our great internal enemy, is it not? Now, in the Lord's Prayer, you recall, we pray, deliver us from evil. It's easy to think that these are scenarios in the world as we go to and from work, as we leave our house. But we really want to remind ourselves that it's sin that we are capable of committing ourselves and that bubbles out of our core all the time. Deliver me, deliver us from evil. Internal and external evil, then, is what the trumpet sounding of deliverance is meant in uh, Numbers 10, verse 9 and 10. This is taught here in the allegory of the trumpets. Now, we're told in the context here of days of gladness, and this all dovetails into the seventh month of the nation of Israel's um, spiritual calendar. The seventh month represented the end of their spiritual calendar in which we have a collage of feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonements, Tabernacles, and then cycle in every 50 years a year of Jubilee. But it also, the seventh month, represented the first month of Israel's civil calendar, i.e., think, preparation for entering into the millennial age. Now, the first was the memorial day of the Feast of Trumpets, and this occurred on the first day of the seventh month of Tishri, and it preceded the Day of Atonement by ten days. The Feast of Trumpets is a prophetic type of future regathering of the nation of Israel, rejoicing under her new king and saintly hierarchy. Next on the 15th day in the seventh month was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And thus the seventh month ended Israel's religious year and began her civil year. From Israel's historical past, we can assume that trumpets will be used again in Israel to speak to the people, to proclaim various events to represent the will and voice of their now recognized and cherished Yahweh, and it will then serve as a voice to the world, trumpets going forth during the millennial age. 
Now, reading from Leviticus 23, 23 to 25, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. Now, referencing Revelation 10, or Numbers 10.10 again, These were to be a memorial before your God. This implies an ongoing remembrance, doesn't it? Just like the memorial of the emblems doesn't stop when Christ returns. Now, what does all this trumpet blowing mean? What does it boil down to? The Feast of Trumpets was a one-day feast and took place on the first day of the seventh month. Israel was commanded to observe it as a Sabbath a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. It required additional burnt offerings and sin offerings in addition to the monthly and daily offerings that were already in place. Trumpets as the voice of Yahweh and the voice of Yahweh in and through his people Israel represents a new beginning this seventh month. You want to be thinking millennium at this point, don't you? The seventh month. With all national sins atoned for, this would represent the regrafting in process and a harmonious and lovely time. Now reading from Psalm 98, verse 4 to 6. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All the earth make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp and with the harp and the voice of psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1 verse 8 says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad. The joyful sound of the trumpet then symbolizes the good news or gladness of the kingdom of God and the name of his Son. And this will be the sounding with a loud and piercing voice under the apocalyptic seventh vial of the seventh trumpet. Now today, brethren, we are the Gentile trumpeters. We sound out the word of God. The Day of Atonement. This was the only day the high priest could go into the most holy place, but only after his own washing and sacrifice for himself and then for the tabernacle and then finally for the people. The principal thought is one of cleansing, is it not? That ye, Israel, may be clean from your sins before the Lord. So this swept away all individual and national sins that had been overlooked during the year of living a rigorous life, attempting to keep all of the various sacrifices. This is, and we have the counterpart to this as we take the emblems, do we not? This is why Jesus inaugurated the foot-washing ceremony where he got down and humbly washed his disciples' feet. We accumulate sin from emblem to emblem, don't we? 
and it's critical that we address ourselves as carefully as we can to try and remove as much dirt that we accumulate from one Sunday to the next. Now, the timing of the Day of Atonement after the Day of Tabernacles makes this Day of Coverings, as Brother Thomas styles in a work of the greater high priest Jesus, who has already made an atonement for himself and now will have cleansed his resurrected and accepted brethren at this time. And this then would represent the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. His multitudinous brethren have now been resurrected. And next, his remnant of natural Israel will be saved. Now, after the humbled one-third comes through the fire, acknowledges the one whom they have pierced, they will be arbitrarily and graciously grafted back into the holy roots of the promises to be fulfilled. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins, says Yahweh in Romans 11. Next, we have the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths in this seventh month. This last feast of the seventh month on the 15th day lasted for seven days or figuratively throughout the length of the millennium. It commemorated coming out of Egypt, which is now coming out of the world, which will have come through flames of destruction and judgment. This represents the end of the harvest cycle, and now all Israel will enjoy its rest. This is the greater rest. This is a reminder that Yahweh will set his tabernacle among them, and he will walk among them, being their God and they his people. Now, we have examples of tabernacling throughout the Old Testament, do we not? This occurred over the centuries in many forms. In the Mosaic tabernacle in the midst of historical Israel was God's presence with them. In Solomon's temple, now built and in the presence of Jerusalem. In God dwelling in his beloved son, the faith that came in Galatians 3. In the resurrected son and in the near future, his immortal brethren who will tabernacle with him. In the future, Ezekiel's great temple in the midst of the whole earth, which will provide a place for the earth and its compliant residents to come and tabernacle. And lastly, in an earth filled with the glory of the Lord through all its inhabitants, the kingdom age as we look into the eighth day. Now, the boughs of the goodly trees that these little booths were made of were of different sizes, we're told. In Leviticus, we're told that some were goodly, more stout than others, and so forth. We can say that these represented the various peoples, nations, and tongues who availeth themselves of the rivers of living water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season, as referenced in Psalm 1. These will be judged worthy to feed and to heal the nations in Revelation 22. And they will represent the 12 different kinds of fruit and the leaves for the healing of the nations. And the various boughs specifically represents the stout infrastructure 
of the patriarchal system as we understand historical scriptures, don't we? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, major and minor prophets. The countless support brethren are represented by the willowy boughs, the willows that are woven through these little booths. You and I, all the obscure brethren throughout the centuries who play into the plan and purpose of God. And lastly, this booth was overshadowed uh, with a palm shroud, was it not? Recall Jesus rode into Jerusalem the last time and the people threw down palm shrouds at his feet. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't know what they were saying, but it represents victory. Now, this feast will be a requirement for the nations to keep and to understand and acknowledge as to who the great landlord is that giveth them rest. Now, according unto this seventh month is the year of Jubilee after the 49th year. So we had one more variable here or ingredient. And it was a year of release or liberty, was it not? All indentured servants were released and allowed to return to their rightful possessions and holdings. And this is realizing that God allowed and sanctioned this. For after all, he is the great landlord. Now, this will be punctuated by the blowing of trumpets as the 50th year cycle will begin with the trumpet of the resurrection call inaugurating the 100-year reign of Christ and his immortal host. It will herald the liberation of Zion from the bondage of the nations 50 years later with the sea of glass being accomplished through Christ's conquest beginning with Armageddon. And it will inaugurate the completion of the great Ezekiel's temple. And it will represent another resurrection and judgment seen at the end of the seventh day in preparation for the eighth day. So on the overhead, we're interested at this time with a little time chunk of 50 years. We have the resurrection of Christ. It starts the time frame of 50 years at the front end of the thousand-year kingdom age. We have a number of things that have to happen. We have, of course, the resurrection and judgment. Ten years by our pioneer writers has been allotted for the events that take place at Sinai. I have a little difficulty with that, but it allows another 40 years for the conquest and settling of the nations, and then we would have an official jubilee, it appears, where now Israel has been reconciled to their God. The dust has settled on the nations. The great Ezekiel's temple is now complete and ready for dedication, and we are ready now to officially enter into a peaceful kingdom age, referenced as a sea of glass. So that's the traditional interpretation. You can reflect upon that. Now, we are told that the silver trumpets were to be blown by the sons of Aaron, the priests only. 
Since Aaron was a type of Christ, then his sons would be the type of Christ's brethren, who also will become trumpeters. Later we will consider that these saints will be trumpeting to the world in Revelation 4 and 10. Now this little sidetrack, if you will, about trumpets all begins with the sounding of the trumpet the voice of Yahweh blown by his son and heard in the depths of the earth by those who have made a covenant with him by blood. Now, back in 1 Thessalonians 4 then, this reference to Christ coming with the trumpet of God is significant in it that it is evident that the resurrection or a day of coverings for the redeemed will start 50 will start a 50 year time clock before the jubilee inauguration following a time of the dedication of Ezekiel's temple stop and think about the logistics of all this you're not going to have an Ezekiel's temple pop up like a child's book where you open a page in a kingdom or a building pops up on the pages. You've got to have a Zion that is at peace. You can't have hostiles flying around. You can't have missiles in the air. You've got to have a nation at peace, uh, confidently working and doing in and through the will of its king. Not that a canopy can't be thrown up around Temple Mount. But you understand the logistics of it. This will be, then, the official start of the government of the millennium at the time of the feast we have just considered that occurred in the seventh month or the beginning of the civil calendar, now the thousand-year reign of Christ. And now we might invoke Zechariah 14:16, which we're familiar with. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And we are told if they are still rebellious, then rain will be withheld from them. And I would suggest, no doubt, there would be other punishments that would follow from non-compliant nations as well. So this establishes a 50-year time frame for the resurrection and judgment for Armageddon, for the destruction of the harlot system and the conquering of the nation, for the building of Ezekiel's temple and for its dedication and the inaugural feast to set the tone to usher in the millennial age. Now in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, we read, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in clouds, or crowds of saints as do now to transform and purify the political air. So clearly those resurrected will be the greater host. To be caught up together is rendered to snatch, to seize, to take hold of forcibly. The word is used of Philip's removal to Ashdod, which was a distance of 20 miles away by miraculous means. Others experienced a similar thing 
Enoch in Genesis 5 was taken. He mysteriously disappeared. Elijah in 2 Kings 2 was taken. The 12 disciples in John 6. So thus, those responsible are to be caught away to the judgment by an irresistible divine force in a similar manner that was Philip's experience. In the clouds is rendered in the diaglot as caught away in clouds. So this then relays a very lovely picture of the resurrection process as saints who like dew are drawn up from the sea of nations because of the presence and the draw of the sun of righteousness as the sun works upon waters drawn up from the earth through the action of our Messiah to become a great judgmental host with the rainbowed angel and later to descend upon the mown grass representing the now disciplined and compliant nations at large or subjected nations for the purpose of ultimately raining down Yahweh's healing doctrine as in the latter rain. Now this all occurs in the air, which is figurative of the political atmosphere and the new government of Christ in in the age that we anticipate. So shall we ever be with the Lord, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. For the redeemed, this is a time of unspeakable happiness and blessedness. It's a state of exhilarating joy, and it's happiness which will last forever. Now, let's entertain a change-up, a change of thought. We're going to Mount Sinai and the regions on a little trip. The overhead before us shows the peninsula of Sinai. I want you to kind of zone in in your mind and, and put on your hiking shoes. Sinai is uniquely rugged and isolated so that a gathering of people, perhaps covered with cloud cover, could be hidden from the world and by flyovers of spy planes, satellites, whatever, if it's God's will. Sinai is rich in historical background so as to provide the solemn significance of the locale and the tasks at hand. It was at Sinai that Moses received his call and witnessed the miracle of the burning bush. There also Yahweh announced his memorial name, which is expressive of his covenant with Abraham. At the mount, Israel was given the law and was constituted the kingdom of God. Elijah fled from the wrath of Jezebel uh, after his dramatic destruction of the priests of Baal. And in the storm of hurricane and earthquake, and then in the still small voice, he was provided with a wonderful revelation of divine power and wisdom. And it was very probable that this was where the apostle Paul uh, received the revelation which was so awe-inspiring of the eighth day that he could not then discuss it. Now, it's only appropriate, therefore, that this is where the final assembly takes place to organize 
the rebirth of the kingdom of God on earth. The Sinai Peninsula is in the form of a triangle. It's bordered on the east by the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. On the west, by the Gulf of Suez. On the north, it is bordered by the desert, desert of the Negev. On the northwest, it is bordered by the Mediterranean Sea. And on the south, it's bordered by the Red Sea. The peninsula is 130 miles across, and it's 240 miles from north to south. The peninsula is divided into two regions, north and south, by the natural topographical differences. The northern region, which composes really two-thirds of the peninsula north, slopes from 3,000 feet down to a coastal plain at the Mediterranean where there are areas of vast sand dunes up and through here. This area may get up to five inches of rain, mostly in the spring and the fall. In the southern mountainous area, the mountains generate a regional cloud cover over the tops of the taller peaks and in the winter, this may be actually ice. The region is sharply incised by deep canyons, which are obvious water courses where water from torrential rains will drain toward the Gulf of Suez or the Gulf of Aqaba. This area is recognized as one of the most rugged regions on Earth. On the southwestern border, there is a rather narrow coastal plain. On the southeast, the mountains rise sharply from the sea. Towering, rugged mountains of granite, of red granite, <clears throat> are intersected by narrow valleys and desolate plains. The tallest mountain is Mount Katrina at 8,668 feet. Mount Sinai is 7,500 feet. Mount Horeb is 6,500 feet above sea level. Before Mount Horeb is a vast plain at the head of the valleys that feed into it and in which the Israelites historically camped and when they were led there by Moses. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses describes the area as a great and terrible wilderness of fiery serpents, scorpions, and drought. Jeremiah declares that it is a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and the shadow of death, a land that no man passeth through and where no man dwelleth. The mount itself is approached through the valley, through a valley of some 200 feet wide. So think of yourself now in a mass of resurrected brethren funneling through this rather narrow gap, 200 feet wide, with huge masses of perpendicular granite rocks on either side, which appear as though shattered and split by earthquake, granite is caused by intense heat. The entire scene amplifies the awesomeness of Yahweh in majesty, power, and judgment. This is a harsh and chiseled entrance to the valley beyond. This is not a soft-flowing landscape. The valley has a gentle but constant ascent. 
The scenery is stern, as is appropriate for the occasion of judgment. It proclaims the land of miracles. Its quiet isolation and split and shattered rocks seem to suggest the goodness and severity of Yahweh. The scenes are suited to the sounds of the piercing trumpet that was once heard there and the equally anxious feelings that will be induced by the setting up of the judgment seat of Christ. The giving of the law was associated with the two peaks, Horeb and Sinai. So I'm going to stop there and let this kind of sink in and put yourself in this scenario.